Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Conflicts the Podcast, where we speak to the film technicians working in the industry today and we chart their journey, how they came to work in this industry of show, and we highlight some of the many successes they've had along the way. And of course, we talk about what's next for them. Today's guest is huge, a massive, massive honor for myself. Someone I first met a couple of years ago working on a documentary and just got along so well with her and found her story to be just absolutely engaging and uh, was really, really blessed to be able to convince her to come in one day and to share that with all of you. Um, She is a grad of the program. Her name is Tammy Jones. She has worked in the film industry now for, uh, well, I don't want to, I don't want to age her, but for for a little while now and has been doing really great stuff, uh, not only here in North Ontario, but also predominantly in the Vancouver film market. Uh, She is a camera operator and actually is the first female um, Steadicam operator in Canada, which we'll talk a lot more about uh, that and breaking into this industry for her and the, the unique uh, journey that she found herself in. Um, again, if you like the podcast, feel free to uh, like, subscribe, share, tell everyone you know. And um, again, it's all about having fun and learning more about this industry. Uh, for all of you that are new uh, to the world of film and are thinking about either joining our film program here or joining the film industry, We hope this podcast is shedding some light um, on uh, many of the uh, more shrouded areas of this industry. And do feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions about either. And uh, yeah, let's, uh, without further ado, let's just get started, shall we? This is episode five with Tammy Jones. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Now, uh, just to confirm... Do you prefer Tammy? Actually, I was born in the States, um, even though both my parents are Canadian. Mm-hmm. I was born in California. And in the States, Tamara rhymes with camera. Uh, so it's okay. Tamara. Mm-hmm. But then here, it's either Tamara or anyway. Right. But I grew up as Tammy. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I thought, oh, I'm going to change my name and call myself Tamara. <laughs> but I uh, go by Tammy. Okay. Yeah. I like Tamara. That's awesome. I do too. And when I uh, was making my emails, you know, you make Tamara at SteadyTam.com and Mm -hmm. then that's it. So it is important you kind of set up how you want to be known when you – but I – I just, it didn't stick. Yeah. Like I just, people would call me Tamara and I'd try and change it and then I wouldn't answer them or I'd just like, I don't know. So I just, now I'm embracing Tammy and going with Tammy. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, and so wait, you were born in California. So were, were you on a vacation or were or your no, parents living there at the time? No, my parents were living there and they were sort of traveling hippies, but my dad was going to school to university there. And so you end up coming back. Were, were they from Thunder Bay originally? or They're from Southern Ontario originally. Oh, okay. So then after California, somewhere along the line, you find your way back in Thunder Bay? Somewhere along the line. Okay. How And how old were you then? Three. Three. Okay. So you, you uh, grew up in Thunder Bay. And where which, which part of Thunder Bay? I grew up out on Lakeshore Drive. So okay. my parents ran a mobile home park and also a youth hostel. And they also took in refugees and all sorts and Malaysian students and all sorts of other people. So I grew up in a very vibrant, chaotic household. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> you're surprising me consistently with this interview. This is awesome. <laughs> and what was that like for you? Like, was it? Uh, it must have like. Did you ever like want just some quiet? Like, I just want a day to like oh, totally <laughs> just have the house to myself and. <laughs> yeah, getting quiet was or any kind of privacy was quite difficult. I remember once because it was like a big deal. So my mom did a count of youth hostelers back in the seventies. There were fifty people in my home, fifty wow. hostelers. So what my parents bought was a an old motel, and then they knocked out all the walls, and because they had spent that time in Borneo, they called our home and the mobile home park Longhouse. So it's called Longhouse Village. Mm -hmm. So our house, because it was an old motel, is actually a really long house. And then all the streets in the in the mobile home park are called Sarawak Drive, Borneo Boulevard, um, Antu Trail. Is, is this house still uh, around like, in its, yeah, its form Yeah, where I'm today? sleeping right now. Okay, yeah. wow, that's so But my awesome. brother bought it. And so, like, actually my brother ended up putting up all the walls again. Mm-hmm. So now it's back to not a motel, but just tiny little apartments right. out in the country, at, in, out in Lakeshore Drive. So... Now there's only one room, whereas before there were many rooms. My um, my wife is uh, Dutch and part of a very huge Dutch family, and her parents were also fosters. So they had so she had uh, five siblings, but there would also be you know a few foster kids at any one time as well. So there was always at least ten or twelve people living in their house. Yeah, and it's the same kind of thing. You know, you just you 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 roll with it. You just make oatmeal for that many people, and you, uh, you just have that many eggs. Well, it's it's interesting just the, um, what do you call it? Uh, like kids just have to roll with it and mm-hmm. they don't know anything else. No, it becomes normal. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what's, what's the word I'm thinking of? Ply, pliable or, you know, they just, you know, maybe kids need more cre- credit. I don't know. Yeah, they can. I, I like the word acclimatize. Acclimatize, yeah. yeah. Or just, yeah, or I mean, you just grow into it and that's yeah. what it is and... Um, and you know, it, it was, it was good. Well, that's awesome. And yeah. so, uh, was, was film a part of those early years or is that well, something that happened after? So in the early years, there wasn't really I, a film. Mm-hmm. Well, I shouldn't say that there were little video cameras and that you could get, but my, my dad didn't have it. So he was into audio recording. Oh, okay. Yeah. Podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Who so what, what he would do is I mean he didn't audio record our voice but he would audio before VHS mm-hmm. um, before you could record the program you wanted to watch like TV so you know you used to actually record the TV so you could watch it later yes that's that was um, my jam growing up so because it was mostly audio based I grew up uh, listening to records like it started like stories on records mm-hmm. so it would be listening to stories mm-hmm. And then my dad started taping the television, but not videotaping. So he'd do, just do audio recording. So um, then I'd go to sleep with like Mork and Mindy and Happy Days and Three's Company and like sitcoms like that. And so um, and and others, too. But those were kind of my favorites after a while. Absolutely. And yeah, so one of my big highlights was meeting Robin Williams on a on a set and I was doing second unit and often we don't get to join main unit when we're doing second unit mm-hmm. 
And so this particular day, we they needed another camera, so we ended up joining the main unit for a stunt, and it was with Al Pacino and Robin Williams. And so I was told when I got there, whatever you... And I was set a second assistant at that time. Mm-hmm. And I was told, whenever you... Whatever you do, don't look Al Pacino in the eyes. <laughs> you know, don't right. speak to him. Don't look at him. He's a method actor. So yes. don't get out of Mr. his butt. Pacino. So I'm, you know, as a second assistant, just scrambling, getting ready for this stunt we were about to do. And setting up the tripod and the batteries and everything. And... Boom, I run into, who do I actually smash into? And I think smear his blood, but Al Pacino. <laughs> and I'm just like this look of horror in my eyes. Oh, no, <laughs> what have I done? And uh, excuse me, excuse me, I'm so sorry. Oh, it's okay, it's fine. You know. <laughs> of course. Yeah, and uh, in the end, I was actually there for their last day of shooting, the, the main unit last day of shooting. And so Al Pacino gives this speech at the end. I'm sorry if I was an asshole, but it's just how I work and I got to really be into the zone and that's why I don't want people talking to me, but thank you all and love you all and Oh, that's so nice. he, he yeah, he was a good guy in the end. Yeah. Um I thought that was that insomnia? Yes. Oh, wow, Christopher Nolan. How Oh, that's very cool. And then so with Robin Williams, uh he was he was just a a clown on set. Like the whole time, and it was really, um, it was really sweet. And he was such a big hero of mine from a child growing sure. up, and just how he sort of made my life less confusing. And you know, like as I had explained, with growing up with so many people, that it was kind of chaotic. And then, you know, you have this Robin Williams who just makes your life so much better as a child and um, and just to be able to laugh and escape and his entertainment and his humor was um, such a, a highlight of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and you know, from way back, almost immediately after I graduated from university and college for film studies, I was told by somebody, don't ever speak to the stars. Like right. don't ever talk to the talent. And I understand, but so I've always had that mentality yeah. until after he died. Mm-hmm. And I went, I never got to tell him. I was face-to-face with him. Yeah, It was lunchtime. We were both in the parking lot taking a walk. And then I'm like, I don't know, just looking at the ground. I look up, and there he is walking right beside me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what to say to him. I'm like, oh, nice weather we're having. Yeah, exactly. Instead of saying to him... I'm a big fan. You enlightened my childhood. You made life easier for me. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And I never said that to him. And now when I work with an actor or even another, I know sometimes it doesn't always seem sincere, mm-hmm. but I I don't, I want to tell them now, you know, like why I appreciate them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the culture on set is a little more, a little more understanding yeah, uh, I mean, you have was. to still be careful because they do have to get into their character and give their best performance, and mm-hmm. they get people har- harassing them or talking to them all the time. Yeah, and they do want to be in their own zone. So it is that, you know, like it, it is a bit of a like feeling it out kind oh, of yeah. thing when you do talk to absolutely um, talent uh, or Anyone, really. or the director yeah. or whatever that are, are, you know, your own boss, even DP. Yeah. 
But yeah. yeah. But I, I, I do feel like like when I started, it was very much like that. It was like, don't you even breathe near these people, you know? But I think there's a little bit, uh, like I said, a little more flexibility now. I mean, in the sense of if you have enough common sense and you've built a little bit of a, I don't know, a situational rapport, you can kind of see a possibility of maybe saying something once in a blue moon. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's the only Or if that, you're the if it, only if two in the parking lot at yeah, lunch. And like, totally, oh, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I, I took one of those moments on, 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 on a film, and it was just talking to this guy who had been uh, in this really weird Canadian grindhouse movie uh, called Hobo with a Shotgun. <laughs> uh, no, it's a wonderful film. Everyone needs to see it. Uh, it's a family classic. But uh, I, I took this gig because um, as I, ha- I did not have the time. Uh, but there, I got offered this AD gig for this, for this little show. And I just did it for the opportunity of seeing this guy work. Mm-hmm. And then the last day, like we were wrapped. He was chill. He was having a cigarette in the parking lot. And I just came up and said, I, I only did this on the off chance that I could have this moment. I just wanted to say you're awesome and had a great time learning from you and everything and just wanted to have that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I waited till the end. <laughs> I was like, now I'm leaving. You'll never see me again. So if, if that ticked you off, I'm sorry. But yeah. he was very cool with it, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. That's awesome. So was, um, and obviously the show we're talking about is Mork and Mindy, right? With Robin Williams? Totally. Yeah. I grew up with that as well. And it was like, what I loved about... And I can totally empathize with with what you're saying is because it's, Robin Williams is already at a 10. Um, but that character, the character of Mork, is in of itself like another level of a Robin Williams. So he really is just pure energy, mm. like the entire show, right? Pure energy. Just pure positive energy. You know, and it's funny because I don't think kids these days, <laughs> um, love that phrase, would be into that humor necessarily. Mm-hmm. You know, it really was more of our era or of new to us. Yeah. You know, that kind of comedy. Um, and I, I don't know, but maybe they would be. Like, I, sometimes kids these days yeah. surprise me. Oh, well, and, and myself, too. What, what Robin Williams would, would, would push the envelope with innocence. And I think a lot of comedy that pushes the envelope, they push it with an edge. And Robin Williams never really had much of an edge, unless you're looking at his stand-up, I guess. But, like, Mork, for example, is, like... It's pure chaos, but it's so much positivity. And I think that's something you don't see a lot of. Yeah. yeah. Your original question was, um, was there film around and mm-hmm. how, how might I have gotten into film? Um, yeah, so I was, I mean, not knowing, of course, but um, into certain, more like plays and creating plays, pretending, I yep. guess. <laughs> but what really got me into film was not until I went to Switzerland to be an au pair when I was 19 years old. Okay. And, and what is an au pair? An au pair is a nanny. Okay. A nanny that cleans. I okay. Think, I think nannies probably get paid more and they don't clean, but <laughs> au pairs get paid less and they clean <laughs> <But> <laughs> and they have, look after children. But they have a fancy name and so yeah. it all evens out. Yeah. But what happened was when I was 17 or 18, I saw a film and... I guess it's kind of the age where you come out of your own self and you start maybe thinking more broadly about the world in front of you. Yes. And so I saw a film called Amadeus Mozart, and it it did something to me where I went, wow, like the power of film. Mm -hmm. And I just realized from that movie that film had such power to it. 
And that's what eventually got me into film is from that movie and that experience. And part of it was even at that age with my whole life in front of me was maybe my low self-esteem talking, but I always felt I was the Salieri Mm. and I wanted to be the Mozart. Yeah. And maybe that's everybody's thing, right? Yeah, and why they relate to, to that? Because we all want to be brilliant, but we're all average. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, so I kind of like sat with that at that age, going, you know, I'm just so average, and <laughs> and I don't want to be, but I am. There's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> and so that's what got me into film, it was just because I knew that the power of story mm-hmm. is there with film. Absolutely. And it's what people like to watch. And I thought, if I can ever have a say in trying to shape people's minds for the good. Always for the good. Or inspire, then it can be through film because that is the most powerful medium. Look what it just did to me Mm -hmm. at the age of 17 with that movie. So the power of story through film can, can make changes. But I didn't know that there was such a thing. I didn't know coming from Thunder Bay... Small town, small country bumpkin. I didn't know that there was such a thing as studying film. Right. I didn't know. And that it was here the whole time. And it was here in Thunder Bay the whole time. Yeah. That here at Confederation College, and at the time it had like one of the best film programs, and maybe still does. To it me, totally does. In the country. <laughs> I totally feel it does. Like it's just this hidden gem, and people don't know about it. Yeah, it's Sure, weird. you got to come to Thunder Bay, but, you know, the college just just – really fantastic about all of the things that uh, it offers and what we offered. But anyway, so then when I was in Switzerland, I was in a bar where all the au pairs go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was this guy standing in the corner in the dark, you know, with one little light, reading a book. And on the cover said, Understanding Movies. And I went, oh, they write books about movies? And you can study this stuff? It's not just popcorn entertainment. Yeah. yeah. And so I thought it was just such an elitist, unattainable mm-hmm. thing, film. Oh, so lofty. Yeah. Don't even bother dreaming about it, right? Don't bother dreaming about it. So yeah. that was – so all these things. And then when I got back and went, okay, what am I going to do? And then I went to University of Manitoba mm-hmm. and studied film studies there. So mm-hmm. – and then I wanted to be closer to home. I had an epiphany that my parents are getting older and I need to come back home. So I came back home and went, oh, Confederation College has a program. Mm -hmm. And that's so cool. And so I took uh, the the program here after university. And the rest is history. Who who was the coordinator then? So it it was Rory McVicker was the uh, coordinator, I guess you call it. Mm -hmm. And then Don DeLorme was second in command. And... Yeah, and they were both great. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm lucky to have Don. Don was my, was my teacher as well, and Don starred in my thesis film. Um, I made my thesis film on uh, Louis Riel, oh. and he played Louis Riel. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, so I had uh, back then. It was Dennis was the coordinator, and then Don and uh, Eric was the young guy. Then he was the young, the young post teacher. Well, for us, uh, yeah, Rory, a really gentle and smart and, uh, yeah, person who really cared about the students, and and it showed probably one of the best things I learned in college. I shouldn't say that, but 
is actually um, my prof here at the school would say, um, whatever you do, bring your own food. Mm-hmm. You don't know if they're going to feed you and you don't know how well they're going to feed you. And that's always stuck in my mind because it's true. Even on the biggest shows or bigger shows, they don't always have great catering. So um, the craft service might be okay and the catering sucks or the other way around. And so I always, especially on day one when I don't know what it's going to be, I think of my Confederation College professors saying, you know, bring your own food. Yeah. And so I do because I'm also a vegetarian and I and I, I try and eat healthy. So it's like, okay, I'm going to bring my own snacks at day one, first week, and see then what the, the food is like on set. I wish I had thought of that, you know, and and the professors said the same thing to me, and I actually say the same thing to the students now. It's important. You have to cover your bases. But for me, uh, I wish I had thought of that because I was too scared. The first couple of days on set, unless it was lunch or, like, they were bringing subs, like, I wouldn't go to the truck. Like, that's not for me. That's for... I don't know why. It's just I'm a daily. I'm just... I'm new. It's... I shouldn't be going. It's fine. I'll just wait. And then you're just kind of watching everyone else eating all around. And I don't know, maybe it was just myself and the other dailies. There is actually truth to that. Like you you do want to be on your – you don't always be seen at craft service on your first few days. Right. Or know exactly the good times to pick to go. So there's totally truth to um, not wanting to go to craft service. And then also sometimes you just don't have time. Yeah. So you're like, okay, I have this, you know, bag of nuts in my pocket and – That'll have to do. Yeah. My first my first day on set professionally was on Degrassi, and I was on the grips, and um, I was super nervous, and I didn't eat in the morning. Everyone's having breakfast, but I arrived, and I didn't want to go to the truck. And they had asked me to go rig something, and so they asked me if I could go on lunch a half hour early than everyone else for the timing. And I was like, first day, I'm not going to say no, so lunch happens in the cafeteria of the school. Right, so, which makes sense. So they put me there, but lunch wasn't ready yet. The caterers weren't ready. So I had to spend the first half of my lunch just not eating and just sitting by myself in a room. And then they like whipped out half of the food. They're like, well, the rice is ready. So here's some rice and some salad. And then I took that and then went outside and worked for six hours. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I was so hungry and so just done by that point. I yeah. wish I had just and eaten you need, those eggs. You need that uh, to sustain you for yeah. the day. Because you got nothing. Yeah. There's nothing in my pocket. Need, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, so when I took the program here, I was the only female in my class mm-hmm. for two years. And, yeah, that was that was a bit hard, but it was also a realization about the industry. Yeah. And I think it's different now. I think they do try and strive to have more diversity. Mm-hmm. When I graduated, um, there was a few things that I wanted to do because it's so great. You get to do like all sorts of different jobs in your second year of, of yeah. yeah. So we, uh, obviously everything's on film. You're using the Aton probably and the Airy. So there was the SR A-T- series. Aton, but we yeah we use the SR. SR3. And that was a big deal at the time. Like the SR3 was one of the latest cameras. And that's the cool thing about Confederation College is they do strive to have the latest and you could do drive in the van and and do your productions. And 
you know, it was, it was just great. Mm-hmm. It's still that way. We have two Amiras. We have an Alexa. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's awesome. And then so we and then we edited it on the Steambacks. Mm-hmm. And right after that is when they went digital. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, we were at the tail end of the of that era. But uh, yeah, you know, I've managed to figure out editing. <laughs> Since then, digitally, and, but and was camera? Did that seem to just gravitate to you when you're during your uh, time here? Well, there were a few things. Um, one was no, I actually even briefly considered makeup artistry. Okay, and then also briefly considered production managing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I felt that if I wanted to be a storyteller, that camera would be as close as I could get mm-hmm. to storytelling and yeah. make money. Yeah. And then I stayed with camera for so long. And it became a different thing for me. It wasn't just to be near the storytellers, like um, the director and the actors, which I was. And yeah. that was great. You know, I was right there in the front lines. Uh, in camera. So I became a second assistant and then I stayed in camera. You know, the money was good. And then and then I had lots of time off to raise my son mm-hmm. too. So it was a nice balance where I could work, make a bunch of money, take time off, raise my kid, and also still pursue my goal of wanting to tell these stories mm-hmm. that were to inspire for the better, uh, make the world better kind of thing. So after that, I just stayed in camera, and I've been in the camera department in the my union, which is IATSE 669, for 26 years, maybe even 27 this spring. It's been a good career, and now cut to many, many, many years later, I am trying to not do as much work in camera mm-hmm. and do my own films uh, I'm sh- here shooting my third documentary. I find Thunder Bay is really rich in real stories. I mm-hmm. mean, they're everywhere, yes. of course. But because I'm, I know Thunder Bay so intimately, mm-hmm. um, I find a lot of stories here. And my family alone, I have stories from my family. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's why I'm here in Thunder Bay is shooting a documentary personal documentary into the suicide of my nephew mm-hmm. who passed away two years ago. And what seems to be the hot topic right now here in Thunder Bay is about the gangs and drug situation and which he was involved in. And so I'm uncovering that right now, just finding out what happened. The last time I saw my nephew alive, he was going into rehab and he was really maturing mm-hmm. And thought, wow, okay, great, he's coming around. And then, yeah, and then he's not. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's he was 19 years old, but it's been a couple years now, and you know we're able to talk about it with clair- a little bit more clarity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so this is a, but this is a solo, like process for you you're you're basically producing directing camera sound lights everything everything and i don't want it to be yeah <laughs> so i'm discovering the world of producing mm-hmm. and because i've been in camera for so long this part of 
producing, or sometimes even that's what photojournal or video journalists, video, I don't know what you call them, but video journalism does. Like mm-hmm. they have to do everything too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they never used to have to, but apparently that's how it is now when they're out. Budgetary. Yeah, cuts they have and to do it all. But I, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're prone to tons of mistakes. Right. Yes. So many and not getting the best. Yeah. But um, so the world of producing is new to me. Um, getting funding is. I have no idea, and you know what the festival market's like. Mm-hmm. So starting over again at the age of fifty-five is like something I wasn't expecting. Yeah, but I, I mean, from from my perspective, looking at you, I got to admit it's pretty admirable and badass. Like to say at one point in your life to look at film as this insurmountable beast, and then to say I've conquered it, right? And then to say and now, you know, another chapter. And not because you want another uh, insurmountable beast to conquer, but it's because this is just where you want your life to go. There's power to that. I think that's very cool. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really neat what you're doing. Thank you. Um, and, and meeting you a couple years ago with your previous documentary, uh, which was uh, expired, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was such a, a, a fascinating, uh, fascinating film because... It kind of, for me, really focused on something that I think we're starting to miss in our society, and that's the moment. And I think that grocery store lives in a moment, and everyone's passing through it. It was um, so fascinating to like hear the process and the painstaking efforts that go into creating all of that work, and then how many people are like, I have no idea it even existed. Because, and that yeah, there's literally, literally like 50, I don't even, you tell me, I mean. Yeah, there's about 50 paintings in there. Wild yeah. in this grocery store and they're everywhere and they're very provocative, you know, like they're, they're not, it's not just like a motel painting of like roses in a vase. This is like really groundbreaking stuff. Um, and I, I, I sometimes would think that like that's, that is what we need to like stop and think about is like what's actually in the moment. You know, I love that you say that because I, I'm so sorrowful over that. I spent so much time editing and, you know, and it also like you're asking people to give their lives. You know, the the Robert who owns the grocery store and Donna the artist. Mm-hmm. And to, which which grocery store was this again? This is the. The Scaffs. Uh, it's in Thunder Bay. Here. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The grocery store in Current River called Scaffs. And. Just I took so much of the grocery store owners, Robert's time, and the artist, Donna's time. and But this is the part of producing where I've been in the camera department as a technician, being told what to do for so long that now I'm like, now I'm the one who has to yeah. be the creator and to figure out all this red tape. I can't just create. I have to figure out how to get it seen because it's, it's exhausting it is it's mentally exhausting because what's the point of making something if you can't if no one wants to see it mm-hmm. i mean sure it's cathartic in a certain way mm-hmm. but not for me i mean I, i'll go for a swim or a run <laughs> or that's cathartic or whatever you know it's a lovely film it absolutely is and i bet robert and donna are just head o- i bet they went home every night just super thrilled and happy and fulfilled because I'm sure they're thinking the same thing, right? Like it's 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 this perpetual and there's so much of that everywhere, right? It's like creating and creating and creating, right? And but you noticed, right? And now there's a film about it, right? And I noticed, I'm talking about it right now on a podcast. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 
Things live. Things live. Well, this grocery store is on the corner of where I used to live. Mm-hmm. So, or not where I used to live. It's it's on the corner of the Lakeshore Drive where I would drive out. So it was the main grocery store where my parents would stop for mm-hmm. just uh, supplies. Before and did it always have paintings, even when you were younger? Or you know, no, they've they've uh, not when I was younger, but I guess when I started coming back. So I've lived more away from Thunder Bay than I have in Thunder Bay. But um, you you know, I should. I also want to. Uh, just uh, say something else that mm-hmm. you might find interesting, uh, and it has to do with uh, my time in the camera department. Mm-hmm. And good or bad, I do aim for perfection. I don't obviously achieve it, you know, the whole Salieri Mozart thing, but yeah. I do strive for it. And so some of my setbacks I've always taken so personally, and it's like I can't leave on that note. I have, like, because in the camera department, you start off as a second. Some people stay a second forever, and I did love that position. Mm -hmm. And then you can be uh, a first and throughout the year. So I did did do the categories, and then you jump up to operating. And so I had different reasons on why I wanted to keep going. But eventually I became a little bit more of a feminist, and— I had worked with, and so I started off my career in Winnipeg, and I stayed there as a second for five years before mm-hmm. moving out to Vancouver. And when I was there, the only steady cam operator in town was a big guy, super tall, super big and burly. And the steady cams, mind you, they were heavy. It was all film. It wasn't video, even mm-hmm. though video cameras now with all the GAC on it are heavy too. But film is even heavier. So I thought, no, I'm a girl. I have to accept the fact that my physicality will not, it's not possible to carry a steady cam. Mm-hmm. And then I just kind of lived with that mentality. It's all I had known in Winnipeg. Um, and then I started working with other people, and I worked with another Steadicam operator, still in Winnipeg, but um, I guess the, the local guy was busy, so they brought in somebody. And he said, so why don't you get into Steadicam? There's other women doing it. And again, it was one of those aha moments. What? Yeah. Other women do Steadicam? So there is a, uh, a, a pretty well-known Steadicam operator. Well, she doesn't. She's retired now, but Liz Ziegler in in the states and she worked on a lot of the big films uh uh with uh kubrick and anyway oh well yeah. now you're speaking my language yeah so. no she's she's worked on on big films like charlie's angels and wow. so i was pretty inspired to hear that and from this other steady cam operator who said oh you should do steady cam and you know maybe st- says that to all the women but it was enough for me to go what mm-hmm. i can do steady cam so That, again, stuck in my head. And then I had the opportunity, Claremont Camera at the time, now they're called Kesslow, was selling their Steadicam. And so I'm like, wow, okay. And then I went and took a course in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And another young woman in the States, very slight, was selling her Steadicam vest. So then I bought the camera from Kesslow Camera, or the steady cam from Kessel Camera, and just practiced and volunteered and did tons of freebies. And eventually I became a union steady cam operator, and I was Canada's first union steady cam operator. 
And now it's great. I spent the summer in Toronto on a series, and there's another woman there who does mm-hmm. Steadicam. You know her? Sarah Mulholland, yeah. Yeah, and that's great. And there's two women in Montreal mm-hmm. who both do Steadicam now as well as operating. They're just getting into it. And it's fantastic, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And so that was a real um, point I wanted to make. It's like, screw you. We can all do Steadicam. It doesn't matter if you're big or small. And I'd like to even think that I've inspired some of the smaller men out there Mm -hmm. to go, you know, if I can do (laughs) Steadicam, anybody can do Steadicam. Awesome. You know, you just really have to want it. You have to keep trying. You have to sacrifice. You have to make sure you have credit on your credit card because yeah. you're not going to work and steady cams are expensive. And um, and just believe when you don't want to get out of bed, know that there's a reason to get out of bed, mm-hmm. that you have to give yourself a reason. Make it up yep. if you have to. Just because over the years it's been really difficult, mm-hmm. and I, I have to say to myself, what am I doing? Why am I still pursuing this? And I say because I have to do it for other women, mm-hmm. so that we have an even playing field in this powerful medium of film. Absolutely, yeah. And so, getting back to how that first movie the Mozart movie and how powerful of an effect that was and how I knew the power of story. Mm -hmm. So I knew that women needed to have an equal say in shaping the world because the films that we see shape the world. Absolutely. And if we don't have diversity, then we're not shaping the world on how it should be. Yeah, we're not reflecting what's out there we're not reflecting what's out there in the world and those are great words um and so like it all kind of ties in right yeah but it's not all always i mean not for me anyway sometimes it's just like trusting the process of what's happening from day to day yeah and going okay i hope this step is for a reason i hope this step is for a reason but it didn't take me too long to realize that that there are so few women, like I'd be on set and I would be the only woman yeah. on set. And as well as in my college class. So this responsibility that I felt I had to give to not just women, but to give to everyone, like that we need to have a balance. We need a softer version of the world (laughs) absolutely that's more lenient and and balanced i don't know and you know i mean so and then so for what it's worth you know you've got this you've got a a solid library of film and tv behind you and on all of these there's your name and people who worked on set saw you right and they're 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 seeing someone there with a steady cam or with a camera or whatever it is you're you're using for your rig and uh they're seeing it happen. Absolutely. Especially, and I wanted to say, your your IMDb picture is arguably the most badass picture I've ever seen on their website. So for anyone watching, you wanted to like see a really phenomenal like uh, portrait picture, uh, yeah, you 
hoisting that steady cam is just about the coolest thing I've ever seen. Normally everyone has like a suit or they're like holding an award or they're like at a backdrop or something and nah, you just Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was, that was my, really cool. My old 3A, the one I bought from Claremont. <laughs> is that it? That's the camera? Yeah, that's the steady awesome. cam, yeah. Um and I think that that's why I stayed so long is mm-hmm. because I hadn't quite been able to prove it. I always set other goals like okay, I need to have my first union top tier like in the union we'd have different tiers of pay so i wanted to be hired as a steady cam operator full time on a top tier production and and so it took me a long time to get there and what was it what was your first one what was that moment well to tell you the truth it was just a few years ago it wasn't mm-hmm. that long ago yeah but that's, what was it what was the what was the show Oh, I think it was called When Calls the Heart. Oh, okay. The TV show. Yeah. Yeah, with um, I, the woman from... <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> the one who's in trouble. Yeah. Lori Lawton, I think it is. Lori yeah. Lachlan, yeah. 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 Oh, awesome. But yeah, no, Aaron Krakow is the star. So that, that wasn't too long ago, but I just keep setting these goals for myself in the camera department. Yeah. So in 2001, there was a lull. Not sure if it's because of 9-11, but there was a bit of a lull in 2001. I was on, on, so maybe it was around 2000, 2001, Mm -hmm. a bit of a lull, because what it prompted me to go from second assisting to focus pulling. So I'm like, okay, there doesn't seem to be work for me as a second. Right. I'm going to start focus pulling on these indies. Yeah. And so I'll take a bump up but I'll get less pay and whatnot. So I started focus pulling first thing on these indies. And then uh, and then I ended up staying in indie world for too long, almost my whole time as a focus puller. Right. So I was a first for around seven years, second for seven, eight years, first for seven, eight years. And then I felt, okay, I'm just on all these indies as a focus puller, and I can't get out of this indie, yeah. low-budget world. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to be in the low-budget world, I'll be in the low-budget world as an operator. Sure. So then I started offering Steadicam as a first assistant and got into it that way as becoming an operator. Anyway, and um, but so there were several lulls. There were strikes, and the city would dry up. In 2012, there was, and then our dollar would become even. I remember that. There was like a year where our dollar was almost the same, and yeah. it was just terrible. Yeah, it would dry Everything up. just dried up. Yeah, I remember that. And then we had what was called uh, uh, Save BC Films. So mm-hmm. we, in 2012, we had a movement in Vancouver, and it was Save BC Films. Mm-hmm. All the unions got together at one of the studios, and it was just packed about what are we doing So all the film workers were in one room and going, we need our industry back. And it it completely dried up for a long time, like maybe a year. Mm -hmm. And then in 2013, bounced right back up again. And because in 2012, I was so devastated, not working. I was so broke. What am I going to do? There's my career. And then I came back to Thunder Bay Mm -hmm. to help my mom through end of life. Mm -hmm. She had cancer. And uh, th- that's when I became reacquainted with Thunder Bay on a bigger scale. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so I was I'm trying to think here. Yeah, because I started as a client rep around 2012. And that's when you get all these markets. Well, I, I obviously would always do the camera reports, right? So you always knew what was coming up. 
Um, and then, uh, you know, you'd get the market share reports and things like that. I always remembered seeing Vancouver as like this steady thing. So I guess it must have been just on the, the tail end of that. We had a, a crazy dry spell for a couple of years. In Ontario, there was just SARS. nothing. SARS killed everything, right? Yeah. And then the few shows went to Winnipeg, and everything else just dried up. So when I graduated, uh, the Hulk had just started, which was, I guess, like a test for Toronto. Like, can you actually do a feature of this size? Um, but yeah, there it, it got so bleak at one point where you know we were um, we were either going to get laid off or we were going to go on like government assistance, you know, like a four day work work week, and they. The government would cover the rest and or, you know, all of this crazy stuff. Uh, and then it's the same thing. There was just a, you know, there was a some sort of a meeting, some sort of an emergency meeting. And then the provincial government at the time did the, the tax credit. And like literally the same day the tax credit got announced, we got two shows. Like oh, the wow. same day. And it was like, okay, all your jobs are safe. We're working again. Yeah. It was just like that. But it was that close. It was like calling... My wife and we had our, our youngest was like a baby and it was like, I might be getting let go. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know what's happening. And then literally the next week, OK, I'm working 40 hours overtime because it's totally life in the film industry. It is so weird. Yeah, it's so weird. And I think a lot of because it's been so busy since 2013. So it's for, been nonstop yeah. for for 10 years. It's been busy. So the the younger technicians haven't felt the drought yes so it was slow last year mm -hmm. and apparently it's going to be another slow year in vancouver okay we one reason last year they say like all throughout COVID, it was very busy mm -hmm. i had never been busier yeah same in toronto it was yeah. smoking busy yeah, yeah of all things in COVID, but um but anyway um what happened was uh, there was a threat of a DGC strike, mm -hmm. or maybe there was a DGC BC strike mm -hmm. last year. Yep. The productions that were slated took off. They went, we're not dealing with that, and they left. Yeah. So that's one thing that happened. So you're always dealing with sometimes it might be the economy or just the, yeah. the U.S. dollar. It's often a strike whatever covid like all these things you never know in the mm -hmm. film industry so you have to have a little bit of savings and you <laughs> so get so used to the money you're like yahoo it's and it is it really is i mean well uh, i think the the big example would be um saskatchewan cuz they cut their credit and like dead like the next day it was like tumbleweeds just started rolling in it was wild and just and same with um nova scotia nova scotia cut their tax credit and everything just picked up and left. So the only show that stayed, I think, was Haven because they had everything was just built. They had integrated into that community. But everything else just picked up and left, you know? And it's like, that's a lot of jobs. That's a lot of industry. It's not just the film technicians. It's like motels. It's catering services. It's everything. And uh, yeah, and on the same token, you can wake up one day and realize you're not going to have a day off for the next 18 months because there's just so much work now. Really weird. So yeah, the uh, what was that that one film for you or one project where you were just like, if only well, I could do that again. Okay, so there was one. It was called Woman Wanted, mm -hmm. and the director was Kiefer Sutherland. Um, the actors were uh, Holly Hunter and uh, Michael Moriarty, and Kiefer was also in. He directed and was in it. And it was in this huge mansion. The script was amazing. Mm -hmm. First of all, I, I get 
I get goosebumps when I get to work on a good script. Awesome. So the script was amazing, and it was in this huge mansion in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. And I was the loader, so I wasn't even on set that much. So Kiefer would hire a masseuse every Saturday. Mm-hmm. And whenever we had 15 minutes or so, we could go out onto the, the – the, he'd set up in the yard underneath the, the trees, and we'd go for our little 15-minute massage. And and it was just – everybody was just so happy. And the, there's a great story behind it too. Um, a friend of mine from Thunder Bay was leaving Thunder Bay for the first time in forever. She had three kids hadn't left Thunder Bay in 20 years or never even went on a trip ever in her life or something like that. And I was in I was in Los Angeles doing something and she flew to Los Angeles and then we were driving back up and she was she's starstruck. She wanted to see a star in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So we were there, we never saw anybody. And then we got back to Vancouver and it was her last night in town and we went to a restaurant. Again, the restaurant is dead. The one across the street, it was Indian food, was packed, right? And we're mm-hmm. like, oh, that's probably the good restaurant where everybody is. Right. So we went, and there's, it's only us. It's like, okay, this is probably not very good food. It's only us. So we, we get our table. The food turned out to be delicious. But then the table, another four, two other couples come in, and they sit at, right beside us. Mm-hmm. So who is it but Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell? Oh, wow. And there was another couple. And so Christine's, my friend, is freaking out. It's like, oh, my God. Wah. And um, so then we eat our food. And when we leave, we say, do you think, you know, my friend can have a photo and with you, you know, with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. And um, so they're like, oh, of course, of course, because we're the only people in the restaurant, right. just us and them. And this other couple. And so my friend says, oh, this is, she's a camera operator in the film industry. And so Goldie asked me my name, and uh, I say, oh, I'm uh, my name. And then the other couple with them mm-hmm. was Rick Wade, oh, was the wow. DP and his wife. And they had worked on Women Wanted. Right. And so I'm like, you're kidding me. I know you. I worked with you. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> with the DP, yeah. That's the, awesome. At the other couple at the table. So it was um, kind of funny. Yeah. I love those little moments. Yeah. I had um, I worked on a film called um, My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. I, did, oh. I worked on the sequel, <laughs> which I never saw. I'm, I'm sure it's fine. Um, and we went to – I never go to the parties. I'm not a party person, but my wife loves John Corbett. And she's like, you're taking me to this party. I'm going to be in the same room as John Corbett, period. And so I, I, we, we go there. And uh, and now I'm going to do the thing where I need to actually um, remember the name of the fellow. Mark Margolis. So he's in this film, Mark Margolis. And everyone's drinking and eating food. And we've got the photo booth. And everyone's having a great time. And I keep looking at Mark because he's in the corner drinking a tea by himself reading a book. And it's a very loud bar. But – and and – the waitress keeps going over and just checking in on his tea, and he's just, no, I'm just doing fine. And so we're there for a couple of hours, and uh, I'm kind of getting worn out. So I, I was a smoker at the time, and so I said, I'm just going to go for one last cigarette, and then I'll, and then we'll, we'll skip out. And I went out, and 30 seconds later, who comes out? Mark comes out. 
and I'm kind of freaking out just a tiny little bit. And I notice he's about to light his cigarette, but like for the, with, with the filter out. So he's about to ruin his smoke. Mm. And so I'm, this is an opportunity. So I just go over and just very discreetly, you're about to light your cigarette the wrong way. You might want to switch it. And he's like, how did you see that from that far away? And I'm not going to be going because I'm staring at you because I'm a creep. No, I'm like, oh, I just happen to notice I'm a smoker, too. We end up talking for like two hours outside. My wife at one point came out and so she joined the conversations and we talked about Oz and we even went back to Ace Ventura. Like we're just talking about all of these shows. I'm just gushing and gushing and gushing. And then at the end of it, it's like and I never got to, you know, say anything personal like oh my name's Andrew by the way or yo I even worked on the show it was just I turned into a 12 year old and just gushed in front of him but he was very cool about it because I knew his body of work I didn't just say "Ooh, you're this guy I was like Oh, I know exactly. you. Yeah, because yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge movie nerd. So I'm like, I can yeah. list your and, entire filmography. And that's cool. I love that. I'm not that great um, of of. Uh, I'm always impressed when somebody does that or I'm they an know so much. Weird yeah. Nerd. yeah, yeah, it's totally. not it's not healthy. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, those are those little moments, right? Those are those are a lot of fun. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you're you're having those moments, and I I think it's exceptionally cool uh, to meet you. And uh, and I, I I enjoy our our time together whenever it happens. And uh, okay, well I'll 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 just wrap it up because I could just talk all night. And uh, I think our student Nigel wants to go home. He's looking at me and he's sharpening a blade, and pointing it at me. And so we're gonna take that as a hint. Um, honestly though, thank you so much. I know how busy you are, and you still came back to the school. You still came back to see us, and and you gave us your time. And I really really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Good luck out there. Keeping. Uh, Keeping and you know an awesome inspiration for uh, you know for 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 young women obviously but for for people out there and for people in Thunder Bay, yeah. you know we can get out we can make our mark right. And thank you to the to you too and, and at the college you know like I am just blown away at how much you've helped me like all of these years later thirty years later and you're still helping me. You're alumni you're part of the fa- so am I we're we're family right. Anyways thank you so much you're awesome uh, thank you everyone for listening. And uh, we'll call it quits then. 